Joseph this week, and it has always been one of my favorite stories. When we first meet Joseph in Genesis 37, we discover that his is a blended family. And not only that, it's a, it's a blended family that is the latest in a, in, in a long line of generations of dysfunctional families. Dysfunctional families. If you read up to chapter 37, you will find uh, the first sinners, a murderer, a, a couple of guys who like to tell everyone that their wives were their sisters. Uh, you can go ahead and just turn to your neighbor and say, yeah, that's weird. It, this is just all part of the, the family tree. Parents who played favorites, brothers who hated each other for one reason or another. These were all part of this family tree. And so the first blank on your outline, if you're, if you're keeping notes with us today, Joseph's family was dysfunctional. His family was dysfunctional. And if you know anything about dysfunctional families, uh, maybe you can relate to Joseph's story. Jacob was Joseph's dad. And he had kids by four different mothers. Tell your neighbor, that's a bad idea. Kids by four different mothers. Now, it was a cultural thing then, but just like it would have a high probability of doing today, it created a fragile family dynamic. At this time, Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers. Now, it only takes a couple of guys together to begin to develop a competition, if you, if you know anything about it, <clears throat> much less 12 I mean, I can think of some really stupid things that we used to compete over when I was a young man. Now, we speculate, but there was probably competition in the field, working and hunting. There was probably competition at the dinner table, in the barn, on their horses, whatever sport they may have done. Guys can make a competition of just about anything. And that competition kind of bled over into the family for the affection of the parents. But apparently, when it came to the, the, being dad's favorite, there was no competition at all. Joseph was it. Uh, the word tells us that he was the youngest. He was the baby boy. And he knew how to take advantage of that role and, and all the perks included with that role. It tells us in verse 4 that all the brothers knew Joseph was the favorite. You can write that down. Joseph was the favorite. So we, we, we've got a dysfunctional family, and Joseph is the favorite. In, verse, in, the, in the first verses of chapter 37, we find Joseph went to the field to check on his older brothers, and he brought back a bad report. Uh, maybe they were being lazy. Maybe they weren't doing their job correctly. We really don't know, but what we do know is that, that Joseph tattled on them, which really didn't settle too well. And to top it all off, dad gave Joseph this special coat that none of the other brothers had. So they all knew, man, Joseph was the favorite, and they hated him for it. So not only that, then Joseph began having dreams. In the first dream, sheaves of grain representing each family member bowed down to Joseph. In the second dream, the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to Joseph. And while I don't have a little brother, uh, 
I can just imagine the chord that this struck with his family. His brothers hated him all the more. And this all added up to the opportune time when their dad sent Joseph out to check on his brothers once again. Long story short, they ended up staging his death and selling him to some nomads that were passing by for 20 shekels, two years of wages. And just like that, Joseph went from being living large and highly favored by his dad to living the life of a slave. Now there are a couple of things that we can learn, at least a couple of things we can learn from this part of the story. Let us not miss the fact that Jacob, the dad, through all these sons would eventually become the nation of Israel, God's very own chosen people, despite the corruption, despite the evil intent, despite how messed up they were. And it tells us that God can use anyone for his purposes. You can write that down. God can use anyone, including a dysfunctional family. That's probably good news for some of us here today. Because some of you could probably top Joseph with stories of betrayal or favoritism or manipulation, dysfunction that has happened to you and generations before you. It's very possible that you may be the the first generation ever or in a long time in your family that worships Jesus. I talked to uh, two former students not too long ago. Uh, They're both married now. He's a pastor. They have four kids. And they were talking about the dysfunction of both of their families. And even their kids, even though they're pretty young kids, they, they recognized it. But one of the biggest motivations for continuing to move forward in their faith and continuing to pursue the lives that God has for them is that their own kids won't have to go through what they went through. Admittedly, it's not easy The struggle is real. But can I just tell you that God wants to break the dysfunctional cycle in your family. God is able to break the dysfunctional cycle in your family. And he wants to start with you. But I submit to you today that that only can happen through a relationship with Jesus. Listen, God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you so much, he's not going to allow you to stay that way. See, when you and I know him personally, a change happens, and that's a change that can affect generations to come, so that those that come behind you, even though they still live in a broken world, and they have to make the choice to follow Jesus just like you and I did, They won't have to experience that brokenness on some of the same levels that you did. God can still use a dysfunctional family, and God can still break that cycle, starting with you. Something else that we can learn from this part of the story. You know, many times in a messed up family, uh, sometimes in a not so messed up family, people feel the need to earn someone's love. We can imagine that Joseph did. We can imagine the other brothers did. Uh, So maybe for you, whether it's earning the love of a parent or a sibling or even a spouse, a lot of times with people, 
We have to work for that. But the Greek word hased is sometimes translated as love. It's found in Psalm 89.2 and it says this, I will declare that your love, hased, stands firm forever. It stands firm. Our, our kids learned something this week that is important for us to learn as well. You may feel the need to earn God's love like you've had to earn love from somebody else, but it's simply not true. The next blank's on your outline. We do not have to earn God's love. My friend Bob Caldwell has always said it like this. That's always stuck with me. On your worst day, God is head over heels in love with you. On your worst day, He is head over heels in love with you. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. That's why we call it unconditional love. See, if we had to earn God's love, we would never have it. We couldn't earn it. God is love. And his love is a gift to the world. His love is a gift to dysfunctional families. His love is a gift to first-generation Christians. His love is a gift to your biggest failure. His love is a gift to your kids and grandkids and generations to come. His love stands firm forever. Turn over to chapter 39 there in Genesis. As the week went on, we continued to study the life of Joseph. We just left him sold to slavery. The story goes, he was taken 300 miles from home into Egypt. Now, if if you and I go 300 miles from home, really in any direction, we are still in the same country, we're still in the same culture, we will still have many of the same things that we have here at home. But it wasn't that way for, for Joseph, because 300 miles was Egypt, and Egypt was a foreign land for him, uh, much like it would be for you and I. Different customs, different languages, different people, no family, no dad, no mom. He was completely alone. Say completely alone. He probably felt the weight of being completely alone, possibly how you and I cannot even imagine. But maybe you can. What you and I need to see is found over and over again in chapter 39. Look at verse 1 and 2. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. Look at verse 2, the first five words of verse 2. The Lord was what? With Joseph. It's, it's really easy to just kind of skip it over. Don't miss the fact. The Lord was with Joseph, even 300 miles from home, even in a new culture, even in slavery, even though he thought he was alone, the Lord was with Joseph. As the story continues, he found favor with his master. 
Eventually he became in charge of everything in his master's house except his master's wife. And just when it looked like things were turning around for Joseph, his master's wife wrongfully accused him of something he wouldn't do. And when she told her husband, Joseph was thrown back into prison. Now if we can learn anything from Joseph, it is to not put ourselves into compromising positions. Not that Joseph was trying to, but he found himself in one. And even though he ran like he should have, he ended up in trouble. But don't we know that our minds work a lot like Joseph's did? And don't we know that Satan still works? He was doing the same thing in Joseph's life that he would have in ours. The memories of the last time that he was in prison, Satan would have just kind of kind of stoked the fire of remembrance of those. It'd come back to mind as he sat in prison once again. Being back in prison would have reminded him of the betrayal of his brothers, how desperate and alone that he was when he first came. The second time around may have weighed even more than the first. He was finally getting past all those things, and now they came flooding in again. Look at verse 20. Then Joseph's master took him, And put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but, verse 21, what does it say? The Lord was with Joseph and showed him what? Mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because, why? The Lord was with him. and Whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Church, if if we just took a, a snapshot of Joseph's story and we found him in prison once again, if we didn't know better, we would probably think, okay, God has left him. God is done with Joseph. I mean, he, he, he might as well just rot in prison this time because there's no way he has any hope of ever getting out. He made it out one time, but, but there's no way he's going to do it again. Joseph, you are done. And I know the reality that it's very possible that Satan is trying to feed you the same lies about whatever prison you are in right now. You find yourself here again. You might as well just rot in prison because the Lord is done with you. God has left you. God is done with you. He couldn't love you. He wouldn't love you. He's abandoned you. There's no way you're overcoming this. Good luck with that. But church, here's the good news. He was in prison for 11 years, Joseph was. He's actually the, the, the very first prisoner ever mentioned in the Word of God. And what we can see in the bigger picture of Joseph is something that is true in our lives as well. You can write it down. God is with us wherever we go. God is with you wherever you go. His Word says it over and over again. Joshua 1.9, he said it to Joshua as he faced overwhelming odds. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you 
wherever you go. No matter the low, no matter the pain, no matter the reminders of the past, no matter who wronged you, no matter how dark your days are, with Jesus, you and I have the strength to be strong and courageous, to not be terrified, to not be discouraged, because the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think sometimes we, we just kind of skip over that part of the, these verses because of the, the importance of the ones before it. Jesus tells his followers today, I am with you always. So don't get discouraged. Don't listen to the lies that Satan tries to feed you. Just like with Joseph, just like with Joshua, just like the, with the first disciples, our God is with us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And if we are his children, through what Jesus did on the cross, he is with us wherever we go. And while we cannot see the whole picture, we trust that God can and he is in control. See, it wasn't over for, jo- for Joseph. The word tells us that God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. And in chapter 40, two of the king's prisoners, the baker and the butler, they had dreams. The butler told his to Joseph, and Joseph gave him a favorable interpretation. And so seeing that, the baker told him his. But Joseph said, listen, yours means that the king is going to kill you in, in, in three days. Notice verses 20 through 23 in chapter 40. It came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. <clears throat> and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker. And Joseph had interpreted to them, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, notice that verse 23, the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, just consider the roller coaster that Joseph has been on for 11 years so far. And add to that being forgotten another two years. I love Joseph's story because it is a story of resolute faith. It is a story of overcoming many obstacles. It's a story of being down over and over and over again, but not being out In chapter 41, we fast forward two years. Pharaoh had disturbing dreams that no one could interpret. And in that culture, dream interpretation was important. Entire guilds were devoted to it. And that's when the butler remembered. Uh, This guy in prison, he told me and this other guy, he interpreted our dreams correctly. And so Pharaoh summoned Joseph from prison and told him his dreams. Now, Joseph coming out of prison 13 years. We might think, okay, he's going to be a a hardened criminal, and really we can probably see why. We can understand why. But notice verse 16 there. Joseph answered Pharaoh and said, listen, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. See, even after all he's been through, Joseph is still trusting God. And don't we know it's because God showed up 
like never before in those 13 years in prison, to minister to Joseph through all of it. Church, that's what God does. Even today, even though we wouldn't choose the hard road, many times that's where God shows up more clearly than anywhere else. Listen, Pharaoh, king, I can't interpret it, but my God can. Pharaoh told him his dreams. Seven fat cows came out of the Nile, and then seven scrawny cows came and and devoured them, but they still looked scrawny after that. Second dream, seven full heads of, of, of grain, of wheat appeared, followed by seven blighted, withered heads, and they devoured the good ones. No one could explain them, but Genesis 41, 25 says this. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. And the dreams are one. The seven thin and ugly cows, which came up after them, are seven years. And the seven empty heads, blighted by the east wind, are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following it, for it will be very severe. The dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. And as the story goes, Joseph suggested finding someone to be in charge of, of the project of storing food for the first seven years to prepare for the drought, and Pharaoh chose Joseph. For the job. He went from prison to being second in command over all of Egypt. And all the surrounding nations came to Egypt to buy food because of the insight and wisdom of Joseph. All the nations, including Joseph's brothers that sold him into slavery. I think this is my favorite part of the story. Over the next three chapters, his brothers came and and bowed down before Joseph just like he dreamed. Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. Now, he did mess with them a little bit, which we can kind of understand, you know. Uh, He put their money bags back in their grain sacks. He accused them of being spies. He gave them a hard time, sent one to prison. Even accuses his full brother that he had never even met until that day of being a thief. But it all culminated in chapter 45. Read with me. Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud and the Egyptian, the house of the Egyptian Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? His brothers couldn't answer him. For they were dismayed in his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And they came near to him. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. And to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. 
Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tear. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. So this is the story of Joseph. It's a story of how God can take a family full of dysfunction and still use them. God can take betrayal and hurt and false accusations and being forgotten and being left completely alone. And he can completely redeem the characters in it. Joseph's is a story of redemption. It's a story of redemption. Just like my story and just like your story. If you have trusted in what Jesus has done on the cross to save you from your sins. If you think about it, Joseph's story is very similar to Jesus's. See, Jesus was hated by the dysfunctional religious leaders. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends for 30 pieces of silver. He was wrongfully accused. He was beaten, hurt, murdered, put into a borrowed tomb, and forgotten by all those who condemned him to die. Church, he was forsaken by his heavenly Father so that you and I wouldn't have to be. And this really is the reason why we do Vacation Bible School, and it should be the reason we do everything here at First Baptist Church. Because we have to tell what Jesus has done and how he has changed our lives. Free gift of life is offered to you here this morning. So as we go into a time of invitation, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and, and just, um, just begin by asking God what he wants to tell you and what he wants you to do about it.